0: Welcome to Inside Scoop Live. Hello, I'm Sherry Hoyt, and I'm your host. Today, I'm talking with Thomas J. Brodeur, author of Faces Behind the Masks, his award-winning YA novel about a 12-year-old boy who dreams of being a superhero. Before we start, let's learn a little bit more about Thomas. Since childhood, Thomas J. Brodeur has been telling stories. Early efforts included drawing his own comics, a skill he honed from grade school through college. In high school, he composed three graphic novels and wrote his first short story, His first published novel, Regina Silsby's Secret War, 2004, was nominated for the Scott O'Dell Award for Historical Fiction. Besides writing, Mr. Brodeur managed to graduate college and divert some attention to a multifaceted career. His corporate experience spans several continents and includes motion picture production, computer-aided design, information technology, management, and customer service. He spends his spare time building ships and bottles and dabbling in calligraphy, cartooning, and fine art. He enjoys fixing things, anything from bikes to broken furniture. Home is Florida with his bride of several decades. Faces Behind the Masks was recently honored with two top awards in the 2017-2018 Reader Views Literary Awards, taking home first place in the teen category for kids ages 12 to 16, and the Reader Views Kids Award for Best Teen YA Book of the Year. For more information on Thomas J. Bordeur and his books, Visit his website at www.thomasjbordure.org. Hi, Thomas. Welcome to Inside Scoop Live.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I've been looking forward to talking with you. So, what is Faces Behind the
1: Masks about? Ah, Faces Behind the Masks is about a 12 year old boy, Travis Warnowski, who fantasizes about being a superhero. Uh, so much so that it actually starts taking over his life. He's going through situations, and uh, he's more in his fantasy than he is in the real world. And well, yeah, what's worse is he thinks his uncle Alex is a superhero. Uh, But Travis still can't stand his uncle, Alex. Alex is very grumpy, he's very reclusive, and Travis decides he's going to blackmail his uncle by exposing his secret identity online uh, until Travis stumbles into Alex's secret hideout and discovers what Alex really does, and it goes way beyond masked heroics. And then Travis can't wait to sign up. Uh, He spends the rest of the story trying to convince Alex, you know, you need me to help you with this. Uh, (laughs) I got the idea from a colleague of mine, came into my office one day and said, have you ever wondered who has the maintenance contract on the Batmobile? (laughs) we, We spent the next 20 minutes laughing about a superhero having to make a service call. And I thought this would make a terrific story. So I started assembling it and trying to tell it through the eyes of this 12 year old kid. So it's, it's a very, Funny look at the superhero lifestyle.
0: Yeah, it's I such a great storyline. It's so unique, and I I love how it came about. That's so. It, it just <laughs> yeah. it just happened. It just all kind of sounds like it just all fell into place. I'm sure there was well, a lot the,
1: more work behind it, but <laughs> yeah, it was a little more complicated than that. But yeah, the idea. It's funny where ideas come from. You know, they can just really hit you out of the blue. They can be um, uh, the product of conversations, like that one was, or Uh, even uh, dreams or uh, stuff that you read or come across in in the news. Yeah, there's there's just, I mean, stories are everywhere.
0: Yeah, it's just kind of recognizing that and knowing what to do with it.
1: Well, sometimes it takes (laughs) me a while, too. I mean, (laughs) like it took me about 20 minutes before I'm going, ding, whoa, this would make a funny story. (laughs) uh, it didn't occur to me right away is Travis the main character he's your 12 year old right he's my 12 year old main character that's correct you're seeing the entire story through his eyes and then of course there's his uncle Alex Mm-hmm. And um, we've got a third character who is a television reporter named Leslie Wright, and she's um, basically getting wind of what's going on and pursuing this story. And the th- their three uh, lives kind of become kind of interlocked as they uh, see the world start to falling apart as the uh, villain starts trying to take over things. And The three of them have to go out and do the rescuing.
0: Yeah, I love that. How did you come to write for teens and young adults? Why did you choose that genre?
1: I started out wanting to write a story for my daughter. Mm. Uh, I started out when she was about 10 or so in earnest, and I always enjoyed action-adventure stories. Um, One of my favorite characters is Zorro, for example, but you don't see too many stories for Girls with girl heroines, they're mostly boys, and I wanted to write a story for her with a a female protagonist. So I essentially took the Zorro theme and transplanted it into uh, Boston on the eve of the American Revolution. Mm -hmm. I wrote her an adventure story. It was called Regina Silsby's Secret War. And it's uh, in the American Revolution, if you'll recall in Boston, the British are taking over the town and they're uh, establishing this very heavy military presence and they're billeting themselves in people's homes and eating Mm -hmm. all of their stores and confiscating their property and they're arresting people and uh, things like that. And uh, suddenly in the middle of this mayhem bursts this uh, terrifying phantom out of the King's Chapel graveyard. Uh, <laughs> Regina Silsby is this woman who died under very mysterious circumstances 30 years before, and all of a sudden, up comes her ghost out of the graveyard, and she starts terrorizing the whole town. And uh, <laughs> uh, every time the Brit- yeah, every time the British show up to try to do something, she's there and she ruins it for them. And of course, everybody's scared to death, wondering what she wants. And the British, of course, are saying, "Well, it's just a man disguised as a ghost." You know, of course, I want him out there, and I want you to find him, and I want him hanged.
0: And uh, <laughs>
1: when they, when they finally do catch her, they discover what you, the reader, have known all along: uh, Regina Silsby is actually a teenage girl. Oh uh, no! Yeah,
0: not a girl.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's a girl. Yeah, she's. And uh, <laughs> uh, I, do, <laughs> I managed to get that one published actually, and then we did a sequel to it called. Uh, Regina Silsby's Phantom Militia, which essentially picks up where the first woman leaves off, and that one has Lexington in it and Concord and uh, the Siege of Boston, and you're seeing all this stuff through the eyes of this uh, teenage heroine. It's a, it's a very riotous uh, yeah. dive into um, colonial Boston. And it's, yeah. it's a lot of fun, yeah.
0: It sounds like a lot of fun, and what I want to know is, how do you get into the character of a 12 year old girl? How do you get yeah, into She's about
1: 16 the- in those stories, but yeah. Well, how difficult is it, really? I mean, we're all kids at heart, you know, and stuff. We, <laughs> we uh, have our various enthusiasms and things that um, pique our interests. And in fact, frankly, I like telling stories through the eyes of younger individuals because mm-hmm. their reactions are more raw, they're more you know, out in the open, they're, um, uh, they overreact, you know, they have these explosive emotions. And so um, right. seeing it through the eyes of a, uh, of a younger person, uh, uh, you can make a lot more use of the exaggerations. For example, faces behind the masks I'm looking at this whole thing through a 12-year-old kid, so I've got a lot of very outlandish uh, things happening. But because you're seeing it through his eyes and you're reacting to it with him, it makes it a lot more plausible and a lot more fun. And um, I think kids also have a – they haven't done all the extra layering, if you will, that an adult learns how to do. So the issues aren't as complicated. They're a lot more black and white and right. uh, so the the good evil aspects of, say, a superhero story are a lot more uh, fun when you're looking at them through the eyes of a kid because all of his reactions are, you know, are huge. <laughs> <laughs> <And that> can- <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah, that's what I was thinking, and it's a lot more energetic
1: too. It seems like you know, and, and I guess that kind of helps move the story along. But at the same time, I'm, I don't want to write down to them either. I mean, the all of these books of mine have a pretty big vocabulary, mm-hmm. and um, the the sentences and the, the verbiage or the verbs are you know pretty um, bold and active. So a grown up would like these books every bit as much as a kid does. Uh, because they're, they're not... I haven't dumbed them down for children, if you will. They're, they're pretty serious um, stuff for grown-ups, too.
0: Yeah, so you mentioned that there's a lot of hidden uh, adult humor. It's not really for kids, it's for adults, That's too. true.
1: What I had hoped to accomplish, particularly with faces, is um, uh, for a kid to be reading it at age 12, 14, 16, somewhere in that range, and be laughing at it all over the place, but then if they go back and pick it up again, in their 20s, they'll be laughing all over again, but for entirely different reasons. And Mm -hmm. the book has a lot of that in there. There's stuff that, you know, could kind of go over a kid's head. They'll still be laughing at it and enjoying it, but they'd like it a lot more as a (laughs) grown-up.
0: Right. (laughs) Yeah, that's funny. Now, the cover is very – it's crazy. I love it. did (laughs) Did you draw the cover?
1: I well, I sketched it out for the artist who did draw the cover. I'm I, actually I am an artist, and mm-hmm. um, I, I could have done something like this, except I don't have time. I mm-hmm. need to be writing these stories, so I hired a, a graphic artist to do the uh, cover for me. You know, I gave him the sketches and told him the color schemes that I wanted, and, and but they put that together for me, and I came out pretty much exactly the way I was hoping it would look.
0: Yeah. That's great. So did you know the sketch artist? Because sometimes it's hard to find an artist that would match what you intend.
1: It can be difficult, but, yeah, yes, I did know um, uh, this person. She's, uh, she has her own uh, design studio. It's called Delfino Design Studio, and she's mm-hmm. online. And now for the Regina Silsby books, the, the publisher actually picked that artist. I did the same thing. I gave them sketches and told them the color schemes I wanted, and they put them together from that. Mm-hmm. Uh, But uh, for faces, yes, I knew the artist and had asked her if she would do this for me and uh, commissioned her to put that together for me. Yeah, we had a lot of fun doing it.
0: Yeah. I, I just wondered, because with picture books, a lot of times the uh, yeah. author doesn't have a lot to say-so in, in what happens. Mm-hmm. It's like almost like the picture tells a totally different story. So,
1: yeah, I suspect <laughs> that uh, probably artists wouldn't enjoy working with me quite so much, because I have a lot of opinions <laughs> about what I want it to look like. And if it doesn't look like, oh, well, so here, give me it. I'll do it. You know? <laughs> right. Right. I'm curious about
0: your drawing. You say you're a sketch artist, and yeah. I was wondering... Does drawing inspire your writing or the other way around, or are they even related?
1: That is an excellent question, and I would say that, yeah, they both ebb and flow because they're working from the the same uh, creative spark. Um, Mm -hmm. The first attempts I did at storytelling were actually graphic novels that I did when I was in high school, and uh, I continued doing that in college as well. So Mm -hmm. I'm I'm very visually oriented, and... um, I don't know if you're familiar there's a there's a book called Drawing from the Right Side of the Brain. Have you heard of that or do you know anything about that? No, no. I can't remember the author's name, but it's a brilliant book and her argument is, you know, you've got your left brain which is the organized part. That's the part that helps you make sense of the world. Uh and we need that. I mean, it's the mm-hmm. side of you that says, okay, here's a chair. It's got four legs, it's got a seat, it's got a back and you sketch that out, that's a chair. <laughs> uh the the kids use it when they're drawing people they have little stick figures and little round faces and things like that but what happens is as you get older you know particularly in the drawing sense about age 10 or 12 uh kids are uh, the, the left brain is so strong in organizing it that kids come to the wrong conclusion when they, they draw a chair and their left brain takes over and they draw four stick legs and a flat top and they're suddenly looking at it and they're going, you know, that doesn't look like this chair that's sitting in front of me. <laughs> and their conclusion is, uh, yeah, I can't draw, which is not right. The, act, the actual part is is the right brain is the side that is all the spatial relationships. It's your creative side and it's the side that uh, can see it. So this book is a, a basically a training ground on how to draw with the right side of your brain in other words don't let your left brain demand a chair looks this way Mm -hmm. the right brain is the one that says okay let's look at what's really in front of me and draw that and you wind up breaking it down into its various components its various spaces one exercise they'll have you doing for example is if you're looking at a chair they say don't draw the chair draw the space around the chair
0: Mm
1: -hmm. In other words, you're drawing all the holes where the chair is not. And so suddenly you're not looking at the chair, you're looking at the various shapes. And as these kids, you know, work in the exercise, start trying to draw the holes, all of a sudden out pops this chair and it looks like the chair Mm
0: -hmm. that's in front
1: of them, not their stick figure drawing. Right. And as I work with that, I suddenly realize, you know, writing is the same way. We think that a writer sits down and, you know, it starts with an empty page, and we write from page one and work our way through the novel all the way to the end and then finish it. And you have the classic writer's block where all of a sudden, oh, what do I do now? And you have to go wandering around in the middle of the night, you know, with your arms behind your back and your chin and your chest thinking. And, <laughs> and, and, <laughs> and that's your left brain trying to do it. And I do not write that way, and most of the writers I've talked to do not write that way. I use a technique which has worked very well for me. I actually learned it in high school. It's called outlining. And <laughs> the thing, the, really. I mean, think about
0: I thought it. you were going to tell me about a new technique. <laughs> no, 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 no. This is an old
1: technique, but believe me it works. And the reason I like it is because it satisfies both sides of the brain.
0: Mm. The
1: outline allows me to organize the story, but I don't have to figure out how my character gets from point A to point B. Mm -hmm. I can hop around all over the story wherever I want to be. So if I suddenly have these flashes of insight for the climax, I don't have to worry about how he gets there. I just plunge in and start writing my climax, and I'll plug it into my outline. If I get snatches of dialogue, which I like, I can get all that down. I mean, you can go pages and pages and pages with this interaction going on, plug it into your outline, and uh, if you wake up in the middle of the night with a great opening line, write it down and the next day plug that into your outline mm-hmm. and so you're organizing all these disparate creative thoughts that as your mind hops around eventually your story starts separating itself naturally into chapters and from there you can start looking at the pacing and going you know what if i need, if i'm going to have this happen over here i got to start seeding clues for it back in here Mm -hmm. And if I am wanting to have this tremendous philosophical point, I can start seeding clues for it. There so by the time I get to the main point my audience is ready to hear it. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. So you're jumping everywhere all over your story And so the whole thing is all mapped out your character development how I intend to display character um, uh, You know you don't tell them how a person is you show it with their gestures and their actions and their thinking and stuff right. like that for, for example in Regina Sillsby's Secret War, the heroine, her name is Rachel Winslow, and she, how do I show that she's a brave girl? I do it by putting her with a timid friend. So in the very beginning of the book, these two girls are walking by this spooky graveyard, and the girl's going, you know, don't go near there. You know, you know you've heard the stories; the old spirits are going to come out, and they're going to grab us into the grave with them. And Rachel sitting there going, oh, for heaven's sake, are we feeling safer <laughs> on this side of the road than that side? That kind of thing. You see, right. so Rachel's brave. And I use that stuff for later on. So by the time you actually start writing, a lot of the heavy lifting is already done. And really, my first draft is done. It's very rough, but it's done. I know where I'm going, and then I just start cleaning it up. And then I can start at the beginning and work my way through it.
0: Yeah, I, and I think um, – I know I have that problem just trying the, – the perfectionism mm-hmm. overrides any kind of creativity I try and have. Like if I look at that blank page, it's mm-hmm. it's daunting. It (laughs) it is. It
1: it can be, but you're right, too, because I tend to slip into uh, wanting to say it perfectly up front, too, so I I have to constantly fight that Mm -hmm. urge to get it right. Uh, If I'm in draft mode, if you will, I'm just looking for raw reactions and and imagery. I have to fight to not write good sentences unless one pops into my head. <laughs> uh, if I have a certain way I want to phrase something, I'll put it in there. I may even make a note to myself, you know, have dialogue about, you know, X or Y, uh, mm. and then move on. And then later on, when I'm doing the cleanup stuff, then I start trying to polish it. And if you can allow yourself the permission, if you will, to jump and just insert your various sections into your outline, you will find not only that it goes faster, but also you don't run into the writer's block.
0: Inside Scoop Live is a global internet-based broadcast talking with published authors about their current books and areas of expertise. Join us and hear both well-known and upcoming writers talking candidly about their life experiences as well as the business of being an author in today's literary world. Always interesting and current, we strive to bring our audience high-quality discussions that spotlight a diversity of authors in the field today. Our interviews are available through direct podcasts as well as MP3 download from your computer for your convenience. Please visit us at InsideScoopLive.com. Welcome back to Inside Scoop Live. Today I'm talking with Thomas J. Brodeur, author of Faces Behind the Mask. For more information on Thomas and his books, visit his website at www.thomasjbrodeur.org. Now, do you have a writing routine? Do you write every day?
1: I wish I could say that I do, but I I have other responsibilities. I do have a a regular job that I work, and I take care of my family, of course. But, again, all of these various responsibilities have to be... um, worked in together so that you do have a nice steady diet of activity, too, I guess you might say. In other words, I think the creative process relies on other things, too. For example, my job actually gives me a rest from the writing discipline, Mm -hmm. and the writing gives me a vacation from the job, so they both kind of play on each other. Yeah. Uh, So I do try to write several times a week, and I find, too, that having large chunks of dedicated time for writing Are necessary so three or four hours Mm. Uh, anything less than that and sometimes you really can't get into the zone but you're right it is a discipline because frankly every time you sit down to write you have to get over that hump of a I don't feel like doing this today or B (laughs) I can't do this Uh, right it's always gonna be there I remember one seminar I was giving when somebody asked me what is the hardest thing about writing and my answer was starting
0: yeah that's yeah.
1: going to be true with just about anything you do. The hardest part is putting that first foot forward.
0: Absolutely, yeah. Now, how important do you think reading is as it oh, relates I, I, to I, writing? It's
1: huge, absolutely huge. I am constantly reading fiction and nonfiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, they both fuel your mind. You know, your brain needs uh, stimulation; it needs input in order to process. And I, I don't think that a person needs to um, experience everything. Uh, in other words, if I'm going to write a a book about a drug addict, I don't have to become a drug addict to understand what <laughs> addictive behaviors feel like. I mean, you know, and you can do a lot of studying too. And I think that. Uh, so nonfiction is big because that's where you can get some of your fuel from. But writing, reading other writers' fiction is big as well because it, it's a big help to see how other people do it. And mm-hmm. I think it's possible to learn from bad examples as well as good ones. I think one of the problems with reading really, really good writers is you go set, so swept up in their uh writing that you, you forget you're trying to study it too and you just move along and <laughs> you suddenly oh I forgot I needed to figure out you know, you, you don't you lose track of why it's good. Yeah. Whereas if you're reading somebody that's not so good, then all the things you learn about don't do this and don't do that. They they suddenly jar you out of the story and you're okay, that's why I don't want to do this. Yes. So you can learn from both.
0: And it it's true what you said. I think it's definitely different reading um as a writer or re- versus reading for pleasure, so to speak. Mm-hmm. you
1: know. So, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Uh, mm-hmm. I find that uh, it's hard for me to read for pleasure, quote, unquote, anymore because I'm always studying it. Mm. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. uh, I mean, some of them are fun, but it's far more pleasurable too when you're reading somebody who does it well because you're enjoying it on multiple levels. You're enjoying the storyline, but you're also enjoying how they do it. And some folks are just brilliant at it, and they're always fun to look at.
0: Who are some of your favorite authors, and what do you like to read?
1: Oh, boy. Uh, (laughs) I enjoy reading everything, Uh, Mm. anything I can get my hands on. Uh, Some of my favorite writers, though, um, I've always enjoyed Arthur Conan Doyle. His Sherlock Holmes stories um, are marvelous, and he just builds a, a plot line so very well, and the way he presents his... Uh, cases and stuff is always fun. Yeah. Um, I think uh, Ken Follett is good. His pacing is uh, excellent. How he draws you into his stories. I've always enjoyed Alistair MacLean. Remember Alistair MacLean, The Guns of Navarone and some mm. of the adventures that he used to write. I mean, his stuff was just terrific and it's so such succinct prose, uh but very active. He he does a marvelous job of you know really throwing into the uh action of the thing quickly and vividly. I've always enjoyed him.
0: Do you read any young adult novels?
1: I have hmm. read some of them. Of course I read the Harry Potter series and I read mm-hmm. uh, uh, Rick Riordan's, you know, Percy Jackson, the Olympians and some of those. I like, you know, seeing what other what other folks are doing out there. You know, one of the things I for example wanted to do with Faces Behind the Masks was, you know, avoid the the magical stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that uh, there's a lot of uh, push to, to try to do those kinds of fantasy things. And, I mean, that's got its place, and I like that. But, I mean, I want to partially <laughs> deal with the real world, too, even though I'm dealing with superheroes. Yeah,
0: um,
1: I think that um, I, I want it to be real, too. I want these kids to realize, you know, you're um, capable of doing this right where you are right now, and you don't have to be able to fly or be invisible or things like that. You have within you already what it takes to be uh, super and oh. so I would oh, I
0: love you know, that yeah I
1: was very conscious of trying to put that uh, in front of my readers
0: yeah oh that's great I love that now you independently published right
1: for faces behind the mask yes I did uh, the two yeah. Regina Silsby's books were published by um, journey forth in South Carolina And faces behind the masks I I went independent for that one Mm -hmm. I I like the uh, having a little more control over it
0: yeah and is that the biggest difference what uh, I'm sure there are pros and cons to each how did you find uh, going the independent
1: route well uh, I didn't find it all that difficult I frankly went to a community college here uh, Mm -hmm. locally where I live in Florida and Uh, just basically took a course on how to get your book published online. And they essentially walked us through all the stuff you need to do and what you need to watch out for and how to get your own ISBN numbers and um, Hmm. the copywriting procedure and how to upload and on and on and on and on. And um, I took copious notes and then uh, thought, okay, I think I can do this. And um, here I am uh, fanning through the pages now.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's a lot faster process, I imagine.
1: Yeah. yeah, it it is, and again, you have a little bit more control over it. There. I think the only difficulty I would say that I miss would be the, the extra set of professional eyes you have from an editor and a literary agent. Um, uh, those are luxuries I did have with the Regina Silsby mm. series that you lose if you're doing it independently. So if you don't have some kind of a trusted group of people, well, let's say a writer's group or uh, someone with enough editorial experience, uh, it can be a, a problem because you know nobody. Well, like one of Hannibal's generals once said to him, "God gives many gifts to many men, but he never gives one man all of them." <laughs> so I, I may be able to write a story, but there are holes in it that you know you don't see. And somebody, have you ever thought about this? Or well, how does this guy get from there? Oh, right. Okay. I better. You know that. It, that's you need. Other people looking at it.
0: Yeah. So, do you have a critique partner or someone that you use to bounce those ideas off the of?
1: Best person who's ever helped me critique my stuff actually is my own daughter. Oh. Uh, she is wonderfully gifted herself in terms of writing and arrangement. She's got a fabulous creative streak. So I love putting my stuff in front of her and going, Hey, are you even think of this? And. As uh, a matter of fact, I ask her her advice on a lot of things you now. Yeah. You know, my her, my wife and I will just sit there going wrestling over some issue, and we'll be going, oh, I don't know what to do. We I mean, well, why we better ask Michelle, maybe what she thinks. So. <laughs> 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 but yeah, she's a big help to me. Yeah,
0: that's great. What do you like to do when you're not reading and writing and and working? You you have a lot of hobbies. Talk about. Yes, I them.
1: do. <laughs> I yeah. Do. I uh, I love to you know fix things. I'm constantly fixing everything from. Bicycles to broken furniture to, you know, building stuff. I love working with wood. Uh, I actually uh, used to build uh, flintlock firearms, you know, Kentucky rifles, you know, Daniel Boone type stuff.
0: Yeah, yeah. I used to
1: build those. I build ships in bottles. I've been doing that since I was 17.
0: Now, explain a little bit of that process to me because I've always wondered like how does the ship get in the bottle do you build it inside the bottle
1: how does that happen (laughs) (laughs) that is the fun of it isn't it yeah Um, well it's it's not too difficult first of all I started doing it uh, the summer after I had graduated high school I was uh, wandering around the house, uh, of course school's done, uh, I'm not working this one day, all of my chores are finished, and I'm wandering around the house wondering what to do to uh, relieve my boredom, and it suddenly popped into my head, I'll build a ship in a bottle. Uh, I, I have never seen one, but that didn't stop me. I uh, ran down to the local library, and I found a book on how to build ships in bottles. Huh? And that book taught me how to build a very simple two-masted schooner and uh get it into the bottle and once I, w- I was so pleased with the result it really came out very well i was very happy but the more i looked at that model mm-hmm. the more i started thinking you know what that's not i've always loved ships i've been very nautical i've been a sailor mm-hmm. i love boats so i'm looking at this thing and realize. you know those masts are too fat the hull's too narrow the sea you know the putty that's making up the sea is kind of sloppy you know I try it again, and so I made a second one and a third one and a fourth one, and then I started thinking, I wonder if I could build a square rigger, you know, the one that has the yard arms hanging perpendicular to the mast, a clipper ship type thing. Oh, my uh, and, and then I started putting in little gun ports and uh, doing the more ornate sterns, and uh, that kind of thing. <laughs> pretty soon I'm building these scale models of uh, famous ships, with, <laughs> but the models are four inches long. But, I mean, uh, in yeah. fact, um, if you look at that, My author photo on my website, it's uh, thomasjbroder.org. I've got one of my bottled ships in that picture, and it's a model of the USS Constitution.
0: I did. I saw that photo. It's amazing. It's just fascinating to me.
1: <laughs> well, it is a lot of fun, and they're all over my house now. And I've, oh. I've given them as gifts to people, and yeah, you almost fear that uh, they're going to lose their um, uh, appeal because again, you go into my house, and there's at least two or three in every single. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's your new decorating style. <laughs> yeah. Well, it is.
1: Yeah, I've got friends you know who are constantly bringing my bottles. Hey, I thought this might be, uh, be worth putting a ship in it, and then so yeah, I've, I've got a collection oh. out there. I need need to figure out what to do with too so yeah yeah I enjoy but- the big ones especially because you don't see large bottles very often so mm. uh, uh, like the one in that photograph that's a uh, I think it's like a a, a gallon uh, I believe uh, it's a large bottle but uh, that's the fun of it is you don't get to see too many that are big and then I, I have another one which is a wine bottle it's a bulb mm. maybe about four inches in diameter but the neck is 18 inches long it's this big, long neck, and suddenly, boom, oh, wow. ball-shaped bottle. Yeah. And I, well, I managed to get something down into that, but <laughs> that's, that's a long trip <laughs> through the neck before it gets into the bottle itself.
0: That's so interesting. You're you're very creative. So. <laughs>
1: well, yeah, my, my wife has called my brain the biggest storehouse of useless information she has ever come across. I'm. <laughs> <laughs> now you also like to travel right we've done a lot of traveling when we were younger I had a job my job took me overseas actually for a while we were stationed in the Middle East for about four years Oh Wow and so well yeah it was wonderful I, I loved it it's just absolutely fascinating part of the world yeah and, um, uh, from there we did a lot of traveling because you're close to Europe you're close to Asia uh, when we traveled home, you'd literally go around the world. You'd head east, and come home to the states, and then continue heading east and stop somewhere in Europe on the way back. So we we were able to do a lot of things, and again, that's just wonderful fuel for the mm-hmm. imagination and the intrigue of you know various stories that happen in various locales, and you just kind of file it away and think you know I might be able to use that someday and. And that's the fun thing about storytelling—is you're constantly just pulling information from everywhere and assimilating it and throwing it together, and then creating your characters and throwing them into these situations and watch what they do.
0: Yeah, that's true. Just to experience the different cultures—that just opens up like a whole new,
1: oh, a whole right. new avenue. Yeah. Well, it's marvelous because the um, you know so much of our uh, outlook is is European. And uh, in the Middle East and the Far East, uh, they're philosophical. The way they look at life is, is completely different, and it's just mm-hmm. fascinating to, to see it and yeah. to to learn how to uh, understand that frame of mind and, and uh, see how they, they view the world. It's very different.
0: That's exciting.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was. We had a lot of fun.
0: So what's your next project?
1: I'm working on the sequel. The faces behind the masks right now. In fact, I'll probably be getting back into it after you and I finish talking. The sequel is called Mission Preposterous, and <laughs> it's 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 about well, I'm taking the same characters. I've got Travis and Leslie Wright and Alex, but this one is got more the flavor of a James Bond uh, spoof. Uh, I'm taking them on this um, adventure, which has them hopping around various corners of the globe while they're chasing around this nebulous villain uh, who uh, uh, eventually we learn the climax at the end what he's after in his scheme to take over the world and then we have to stop it of course you know it's it's very it's uh, I think it's funnier than faces behind the masks myself
0: Oh great so I guess it might be too early to tell but do you intend uh, a series?
1: Well I know I've got at least two and I've got thoughts for a third but I have some other projects I want to work on as well Mm. Uh, that uh, uh, would be a different sets of characters. And again, I don't want to go into too much detail because right. I don't want to uh, blow my uh, <laughs> ideas. Otherwise, I'll see them on a billboard next week somewhere. Uh, but, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> otherwise, uh, but yeah, I've got, all, I've got enough stories to last me the rest of my life.
0: Uh, oh, frankly. that's awesome. That's mm-hmm. great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like to end every interview with the same question, and that is, uh, do you have any advice for aspiring authors?
1: Yeah, one is be mindful of the ideas floating around you. Their ideas are everywhere. The problem for most of us is, you know, when we're sitting around the lunchroom with our friends and we're going, wouldn't it be great if this or that happened? There are the ideas for a story right there. The problem is most of us just let them fade away into the air. Write mm-hmm. um, them started. Uh, mm-hmm. And that happens, that's a necessary courage every single day, even if you're experienced at it.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's great advice. Thomas, thank you so much for joining me today. I really enjoyed it.
1: It was my pleasure. Thank you.
0: To our listeners, thank you for joining me today on Inside Scoop Live for my interview with Thomas J. Brodeur. To learn more about Thomas and his books, visit his website at www.thomasjbrodeur.org. And don't forget to check out our other interviews at insidescooplive.com.